0: Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Thank you. Happy New Year. I am very excited to be here with you this morning for lots of reasons, but I love this time of year. Uh, And also because we're doing the fully alive service this weekend and next weekend. It's kind of a capstone to 18 and a setting up a 19, which means I get to come preach in a t-shirt again, which is my favorite. I hope we have a t-shirt for every sermon series I get asked to preach in, because I love preaching in a t-shirt and jeans. That's great. Um, But it really is one of my favorite times of year. I love Christmas, and my family, we have uh, lots of traditions we do uh, at Christmas. I don't know if you guys have traditions in your family, like my family's sitting over here, so they're going to call my bluff if I'm not being honest. But of course I'm honest, I'm I'm a pastor. So, uh, one of our traditions, we watch Elf when we are decorating our tree. Do you all watch Elf decorating your tree? Anybody? Yeah, you should start that tradition because it's amazing. That movie is never old. It is always funny. Um, So we watch Elf. Um, Let's see, what else do we do? We go to my mom's for Christmas Adam. Do you all know what Christmas Adam is? It's the day before Christmas Eve. You can have that. But for Christmas, Adam, we go to my family's house, Uh, and my family, believe it or not, I'm Italian, and so I grew up in upstate New York, and Christmas Eve at that time, not Adam, uh, but I'm working on Christmas Eve now, so on Christmas, Adam, we go to my mom's, and we have an Italian meal, and the first time my wife came to my family's for Christmas, uh, Adam dinner, it was all Italian, and she was like, what are we doing? Why are we eating this? She's from Tampa and Georgia. She's a southerner, and she was like, where's the ham and like the tur- and I'm like, "What are you talking about? This is what you do on Christmas Eve. You eat Italian. Jesus was clearly Italian." Um, and so we eat lots of meatballs and sauce and noodles, and uh, that's so that's one of our traditions. And then Christmas Day, we started this tradition when our kids were pretty little. Um, we do Christmas at our house as a family, and we don't go anywhere. And our goal for the day is to not get out of our pajamas that we got for Christmas. And so far, I think we're pretty pretty consistent. We do not get out of our pajamas. It's an awesome day. I love it. And then the next day, we, um, uh, every year we go to Tampa, where my wife's family's from. My wife is the oldest of six. Uh, and so there's 10 cousins and aunts. It's great. Um, and kids everywhere. And so we drive over to Tampa the day after Christmas. We stay a day or two. And, and on the way, we always play Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God. How many of you all know that album? Oh my goodness. You all do now, and you all have an assignment, I'll remind you next Christmas, to get this album and listen to it. It's amazing. It's, a, it's the telling of the story of the coming of the baby. And so we, we get the kids in the van in the morning, we're driving to Tampa, we put this album on, and of course, because they're pastor's kids, you know, angels are singing and they're holding hands. And, and we're glowing because we're... No, that's not what's happening at all. We're in the van and we're struggling to listen. And then finally my wife and I are like, Stop it! Listen to Behold the Lamb of God. Prepare your hearts for Christmas. And then we kind of look at each other we're like, This isn't working. But it usually always turns a corner and we end up having a lot of fun by the end of it. Maggie and I are crying and it's a beautiful time. So that's one of our traditions. Uh, and then we have a tradition that we're getting ready to do, which is on New Year's Eve... We do a couple of things. We uh, we make a vision board most years, which is really just cutting up magazines and pulling words and phrases out of magazines, maybe pictures, and and gluing them onto a piece of paper. And each person in the family does it, and then we kind of explain what the the vision board means for us and what we're hoping for this next year. And then a couple years ago, we started picking a word out of that, and that was kind of our word for the year. And so last year, my word was expectant, like expectant that God was going to show up in 2018 in ways that I just couldn't have asked or imagined, and he has. And so this tradition of picking a word becomes helpful also at the end of the year, like Michelle was saying, you know, to look back over your your year and kind of how did God show up in ways that I was expecting and not expecting? You know, uh, and and so having a last word for the year and a first word for the year can be a really great practice. So that's what we're going to do uh, this week and next week. And in the Gospel of Matthew today, we're going to look at uh, the last word for 2018. But then we're also next week, Sean's going to do a first word for 2019. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at a first word for Jesus, a name that Jesus was given. And how that correlates to the last words Jesus spoke at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Does that make sense? All right, cool. I got a yes over here. Perfect. Someone understood me. All right, so if you were at Northland this year in 2018, what do you think is a word that you might have in retrospect and reflection for 2018 for Northland? Participatory. What? Alive. Alive. Wow, that's great. 9 a.m. said a lot of other great words. And then I finally had to do this. I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah, fully alive, that's it. Uh, but there were lots of great words, peace and grace and love and mission. And, um, but really for this year, if you were at Northland, you would know, we spent a lot of time unpacking this phrase, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. So a word would definitely be life. And, um, and lots of ways we experience life at Northland. This year, we had daddy-daughter dances. I have two daughters, so that's always a favorite. Uh, We did this huge trunk-or-treat outreach, thousands of kids. We served football teams, food before games this fall. We got a new youth pastor. Um, We did this new vision. I mean, there's lots of amazing things that have happened this year that tie into that word life, mission trips, outreach, ministry, you know, but the thing that I've really appreciated about Pastor Matt and, and also John Cortinas when he would preach or or Pastor Sean, when he preached, and Pastor Nathan, is we all really felt this burden to make sure that the congregation never felt like this vision was saying, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus means you're always going to be happy. Because that's not what that means. right? To be fully alive means I feel all of the emotions of being alive. And when you look over a year in retrospect... You have to be honest with yourself and be able to identify the celebratory things, the good things. But I'm guessing if you're a human being on this planet, 365 days, there had to be a day where it wasn't all that great. Maybe it was even terrible. And we, what we've spent time unpacking this phrase is that that's okay. What if God actually wants us to be fully alive? This abundant life of John 10.10 means that we have all of the life in us. And it's okay. God is big enough to bring what it's like to be alive as a broken human in a broken cosmos to him. Right? And so we spent time in the Psalms. And we looked at Psalm 88, the darkest of Psalms. It doesn't ever go back up out of the valley. And we wondered together, maybe that's okay. Because maybe there are days where I don't think it feels like we're getting up out of the valley. And God is big enough to let us be fully alive. In Jesus, but the in Jesus part is what gives us hope, right? And so yesterday, my wife um, got a chance to go to a funeral for a woman who was a, really a matriarch of Northland overall, but she was the matriarch of Northland Oviedo, where I was the pastor for 10 years. And um, her name was Karen Hansen. Karen Hansen was a woman who impacted thousands of lives at Northland. And for a large chunk of the time that she did that, she was dying of cancer. And she would go into remission, and then it would come back, and then she would go into remission, and it would come back. And she finally passed away, and yesterday was her funeral, and my wife came home and sat down, and she just said, wow, what a life she lived. She really was with God and with people. I mean, she really allowed herself in the mess of it all to, to be known and to know others. She loved well, and, and it showed in this the things that people would share about her life. And so if we reflect on a year, we have to be willing to say it was really hard to lose Karen, and we rejoice at the way she was used by God to impact so many people's lives. And so we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. When we think of the past or looking forward to the future, that that's actually a part of being fully alive. And so let's look at a word that opens up in the Gospel of Matthew that's used for Jesus, that he kind of is given us, um, and that is repeated in some of his last words in the Gospel of Matthew as a way uh, for us to remember this year as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Matthew uh, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to start in verse 18. Uh, Matt and Joshua Roy are a couple of writers on this thing I read a lot called Seedbed. So is a, a daily devotional. Uh, They're out of Asbury. And this is what they said about Advent. Because remember, that's what we're coming out of right now, right? The Advent season. This is the end of the Advent season. Wait and hope are the twin anthems of Advent. It's interesting that in both Hebrew and Latin, the root word for wait can also be translated as hope. A reminder that we do not despair as we wait in the darkness, but we light a candle. It's the first flames of hope, and it pushes back the shadow, one light at a time. Advent begins in the dark, but around the edges of the deep horizon we see a faded gray creeping in. We hear a forgotten yet familiar voice. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Let there be light. Oh, that's such a beautiful picture for Christmas. That's why we light the candles on the Advent wreath. and, And it's really what's going on as we move from the first part of this book we have called the Old Testament. And we turn the page in the middle to the New Testament. The first page of the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew. And the reality is it had been dark for hundreds of years. They had not heard his voice. The prophets had been quieted the roman empire had moved in they were subservient yet again to another power and matthew opens the new testament in this word with these words the record of the genealogy of jesus yeshua that's what we we're just saying about which means the lord saves and then he says the messiah which means the anointed one the one who is coming to fulfill the promises of god that started in Genesis chapter 3. The heel will crush the head of the serpent. He says, this is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew really focuses the writing of his gospel on the Jewish people who are becoming believers in the New Testament, right? Mark is kind of like the facts, just the facts. He's like the quick it's almost like cliff notes of the gospel. Not that I'm saying it's unimportant. It's all important, but he's really quick with everything he says. Here's what happened, here's what it, how it went, deal with it. And then Matthew's talking to the Jewish believers. Now Luke is, is a physician, and he's writing more detail, but he writes a lot of his detail to the Gentile believers, the non-Jewish people. Try to get them to understand what this means, because they don't have the backstory that a lot of the Jewish people do. And then John is just this poetic arc of beauty um, and majesty in in his gospel. So Matthew takes time opening up, calling him Yeshua, the Lord saves, Messiah, the anointed one, and then he says the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then he goes through all these names. So keyed in on making sure that the people who are hearing this understand this is the one. And then he names all these people which If you and I were making this list, this is not the tree that we would fill out. There are names on this tree we would leave out of the the list, which gives me great hope, right? When I read Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and David, really, when I read these names, I think, oh, Lord Jesus, you might even still use a mess like me. Because this family tree is full of messy people. And that gives you and I hope because I'm not perfect. Just ask them. No, don't ask them. My family, don't ask them. They'll tell you too much, but I'm not, I'm not perfect. And so he moves through this list of the family line and ends with uh, the statement that there was deportation to Babylon, to the Messiah, there are 14 generations. He ends with, again, the Messiah. He's making sure everyone reading knows he is the one. Now, you know the story, we read it during Advent, Mary gets pregnant She has a son. They say, you will call his name Yeshua, verse 21. For he will save his people from their sins, which is, again, the Lord saves. It's good and important to notice that that's a being. I am Yeshua. The Lord is the one who's doing it. And all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. Just think about that for a second. The cosmicness of the reality that God is with us in this baby. The infinite chose to become finite, the immortal chose to make himself mortal. The creator of space and time chose to enter into it in the form of a man, but not just a, a man as the form of the baby, being born like any other man or woman, just like you and I. Like, that should blow our minds. We should just sit on that daily and think, that's crazy that you chose to do that. It doesn't make any sense at all. The image of God is what we're told in the opening lines of Genesis. We're all made in the image of God. Male and female, he made us in in their image. And And then Jesus is born in the image of God, but he's perfect. And then he grows in the fullness, which is used several times to describe his ministry, the fullness of God. Perfectly. And he's the firstborn son, and we are all following in his footsteps, born in the image of God and being transformed into the fullness of God. This is what we're talking about in Corinthians when it says, from one degree of glory to another, we are being transformed into the likeness, the fullness of God. But it is interesting to think about the fact that he was a baby. And then he was like, A middle schooler? That's the next time we hear about him, right? He's in the temple teaching at Passover. (coughs) And his parents uh, come to Jerusalem for the feast, and they can't find him. And the part that I don't think I ever really thought about until I was preparing for this, it says, and he was missing for three days in Jerusalem. Freak-out session? How bad would you be freaking out? I would be freaking out if they were missing for an hour. He was missing for three days, and they're looking all over the city for him. They finally find him. He's in the temple teaching. And, he's, and everyone's amazed at his teaching. And they come, and they're like, yo, you freaked us out. Jesus, what are you doing? And he's like, didn't you know I was going to be about my father's business? I had to be about my father's business. And then it says this, but he subjected himself to them. So he even right there, like, he could have turned on the whole Savior thing, King of the Universe thing, but he doesn't. he's like, you know what? I want to live my life as a man. I want to know what it's like to be human. So I'm going to have my parents kind of take the lead here. And then we don't hear about him again until he starts his ministry around 33, around 30 to 33, right? And that means he probably like grew up in dad's house, doing dad's work. He was a carpenter maybe. Maybe he made up a table for somebody and they were like, this stinks. You don't even know what you're doing, right? He had to deal with human beings day in and day out. He probably got sick. I mean, like, think about the ponder the divine becoming human. Now, why did he do that? Why? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us um, that it is because he desired to become the perfect high priest, it says in Hebrews chapter 4. The perfect high priest who could sympathize with us and know what it's like to live in temptation in a broken cosmos. I think we see this, right, when, when um, Jesus is standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, weeping. Even though he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, so like he doesn't have to weep, but he allows himself to enter into what it's like to be a human being who loses someone they love to death. He didn't know what that was like as God. But now our God knows what it's like to be human, like us. He is with us. Emmanuel, in our humanity. Why? So that we can be with each other in our humanity. There are, a theologian by the last name of Wilbur says this, and I love this picture. Let us focus on the transformational level of the Abrahamic religions where God is central. And the goal is to be transformed into God's likeness rather than what I would call the transactional level of many uh, modern interpretations of these religions, where our ego or false self is central, and we are trying to control God. Oh, I love this picture. This is what Jesus did perfectly. He perfectly kept the Father central, and his goal was to bring about God's glory through his likeness. That's amazing, and that's the invitation we're being given. And the best part is, he gives us the helper. He's the one doing it to, in, and through you. We're not having to try harder. I mean, that's why he looks at his disciples, and he says, it's good that I go away. And they're all like, nope, saw you walk on water, saw you raise people from the dead, I don't think you should go anywhere. And he said, no, I have to go, because when I go, I will send the helper. And he will take up residence inside of you. And then you will do greater things than even I have. That's amazing. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, what we learn is, in the city of Antioch, they started to be known as Christians. Which really doesn't make sense, right? It should be Jesus-chins. Because, like, his name is not Jesus Christ, like, first name, last name. His name was probably Yeshua Bar-Joseph. Right? Son of Joseph. So his last name is not Christ, but he's called the Messiah. And what's fascinating is the early church are not called little Jesuses. They're called little Christs, little messiahs. Why is that? I'm not. You and I are not the messiahs. There was only one messiah, only one anointed one. But what Jesus tells us is because of his finished work on the cross, because of what only he can do, He's poured out his Holy Spirit on us, making us all the priesthood of all believers. We're all the anointed ones now, and we're sent into the world to bring out that good news. The good news that it's done, he did it. But see, witness, which is the promise of Emmanuel, witness is not fixedness. And that's where we struggle. We think that if he's with us, then that means he will fix everything. That the Messiah will make it better. And that is actually one of the, the most confusing things. My daughter actually recently went to a bat mitzvah, which is the one girl becoming a woman celebration in the Jewish faith, similar to the bar mitzvah for a boy. And I was so excited for her to be able to do this. So she went, and they, had, they do it right. We, we really need to have better parties Uh, as non-denominational churches at these big moments because they know how to do it. They had a great time, great celebration. But she got to go to the temple and and see her friend recite things out of the Torah on these scrolls. And I was, I think, maybe more excited than her. Um, And so so I picked her up and I'm like, tell me about it. What was it like? And she's telling me all about it. And then she asked this great question. She goes, Dad, I, I totally recognized a lot of what was going on. Like I could understand Um, The story. She goes, it seems like we believe a lot of the same things. And I said, oh, we absolutely do, you know. And then she goes, so what's the difference? And I said, this is the difference. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. They believed he was a great teacher, but he was not the one because they thought the Messiah had to look a certain way and change everything and fix it. And what the Messiah did is the Messiah did do that on a cosmic level. In the heavenly realm and in the earthly realm, it's done, it's over, it's finished. But it didn't fix it the way that they all wanted it to be fixed. And so it's so good for us to remember that when we're with each other, right? That withness is not fixedness. I mean, I, my wife and I are both therapists. I sit across from people all the time who want me to fix what's wrong in their life. I'm like, i I can't. But here's what I can do. I can be with them. And something happens when we are with each other. Truly present, as Michelle said, with one another. The little christs of us comes out. Because that's what the Holy Spirit has sent us to do. In fact, that's what we get in the last word of the Gospel of Matthew. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Right before that, it's interesting. So, Jesus uh, rises from the dead. And there are women at the tomb... And they see him, and he says, go and tell the brothers um, that I'm here. And he says, then, um, and then tell them to meet me in Galilee, and I'll, I'll meet you guys up there. Which, again, I, these scenes, I just can't wait to rent Redbox when we get up there, because i got to think, you're like, no, I don't want to leave. This is crazy what's happening. But anyway, they obey, uh, goes and tell the brothers. They go to Galilee. And then it does this little, this little thing at the very right before the Great Commission, and it tells the story about how guards had been paid to tell a story to their leaders that the disciples had come and stolen the body of Jesus. It's the only gospel that includes that, which is fascinating, unless you remember what I said, that Matthew is talking to Jewish people. And so this rumor was spreading around the Jewish community, And so Matthew's very specifically talking to them. Hey, that rumor you heard, we already knew about it. It wasn't us. This really happened, and we've seen him. And so then it goes on to say, in verse 16, Jesus says, or in verse 16, it says, the 11 disciples proceed to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Of course, he was dead. Three days is a long time, people. This is real. He was dead, buried in a ground. They all went scared, not sure what's going to happen. Now he's alive. He comes walking up to them at this mountain. He told them to go meet him at. They weren't really sure if it was true. And they saw him and they worship him. But some were doubtful. Some were doubtful. Here's another. This, to me, that, those four words, this is a gift from God to us to let us know Of course there are times when you're going to doubt. It's really hard to believe this is true. I mean, they were looking at a man who had been dead and he was now alive. And some of them are falling down worshiping and some of them are doing what Thomas did. I don't know. I'm not sure. Let me stick my hand in his side. How do I know you guys didn't pull a a double take here? I mean, we, we do this sometimes. And I feel like what we're getting here in Scripture is that of course we do. It's hard being a broken human in a broken cosmos. It's hard. And I think God is okay with us being honest that it's hard. My wife has this great story that <clears throat> she was processing some of her, her uh, origin story, some of her family of origin story in counseling. That's why we became counselors. And she got this vision. She got this picture um, that... Um, that she had where she was sitting about 15, 16 years old, sitting on a curb crying with her hands in her face. She's crying, and and Jesus is with her, and he's crying. And she just says to him so honestly, it's just so hard. It's just so hard, and she's crying. And she hears Jesus say back to her, I know, I remember. I get goosebumps every time I, the first time I heard that and every time I've told it since then. The picture of our Savior saying to us, I remember, it is hard. And then she has this other picture she she has, you know, it says that Jesus is in the heavenly realm seated at the right hand of the Father. This is why it's so important that this is not a, a mythology of someone who is not alive. He is alive. That's what he says right here in the, Beginning of the Great Commission, I have all the authority on heaven and on earth. He's alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's not like lounging back drinking a Slurpee. I think I love my wife's picture. She sees him in the heavenly realm, seated seated at the edge of his seat, saying, Dad, let me go. Let me go back. Come on, it's time. They've had enough. I know what it's like to be human down there. It's hard. I love that picture so much. It says he doesn't even know the times. He himself said that. Only the Father does. And so I love this idea that he, is, he wants to make all things right. And between now and then, however long that is, what he's given us, given us is the gift of the Holy Spirit who is with us. And that's the promise at the end of the Great Commission. So the Great Commission goes on. Jesus says, I've got all the power, which is incredibly important for us to remember, because it's only him who does this. He's got all the authority in heaven and on earth. And it says, and because I have all that authority, just go out into the world. Go therefore, which really is better translated like along the way, like while you're walking down the road, make disciples. And making a disciple means just tell people who I am and what I've done and who you are and what happened and who you're becoming now because of me. That's all that means. In fact, we actually have a picture of that happening on the road to Emmaus. A couple of guys are walking, and they're going, I don't know what just happened. That guy was the Savior, and then they killed him. He has got nailed to a tree, and he's buried. What is going on? And then this stranger shows up, and he just starts walking with them. He starts walking down the road and just, so what's going on? Tell me, oh, wow, that's crazy. I heard some things about that. Have you guys ever heard of this? And he starts telling them stories and talking about who God is and what God has done. And as he's telling them these stories, they realize, oh, my gosh, this is, you're him. And they're eating food together, which is a big deal throughout Scripture. Like, it's very casual. It's not go into all the world and build seminaries and make sure people can pass doctorate level programming. Although I went to seminary, so that sounds really weird for me to say it, but that's not what happened. It's telling stories about who God is and what he's done and telling stories about who you are and what happened and how God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are transforming me into a different person. So go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, and then it says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Kind of a big deal that Jesus is identifying the Trinitarian Godhead right there. And he's, he, he's making them all different but equal. He's saying, I want you to baptize people, which is simply an outward symbol of an inward reality that we are after them. Right? We meaning the Trinity, the Godhead. We are after you. We're coming after you. And once you're ours, we want you to get baptized. My wife and I have a saying in our testimony that says, God has been in a relentless pursuit of us in spite of ourselves and he always eventually wins. And that's what this is a picture of. I want you to go in all the world, tell people all about me, tell them about what I've done in your life. And then when they start to have that little bit of a twinge, they go, I think I want to know more about this. I want you to baptize them right there. They become a part of the family. And then I want you to, the next line, teach them how to obey all that I've commanded you. Okay, so now we get baptized, we come up out of the water and inherent in the description of the Great Commission, is all of you. There's a group of people there clapping, going, oh, yeah, you're one of us. Now let's learn together how to obey and observe all that he's commanded, which could be really scary because maybe Jesus' three years of ministry, the Old Testament, that might be overwhelming. But the best part is Jesus made it very simple. Because remember, there were roughly 800 midrashes, which were rabbinical teachings of the Old Testament at this time when Jesus shows up in his ministry. And so certain rabbis kind of had like favorite commandments that they would teach on, which is why they try to trick him in Matthew 22 and say, What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, Oh, let's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then he pulls out this old Levitical teaching that's kind of buried in Leviticus that says, And love your neighbor as yourself. And They're all kind of stumped. And so Jesus says, hey, all the ways you guys are trying to figure this thing out, let me make it simple. Love God, love others, love yourself, and let others love you. Oh, great. So now when I read the Great Commission, it says, teach them to observe or obey all that I've commanded. What I'm really hearing is, be a part of a community who's learning how to love. How to love God and love each other and let each other love others. And go out and love others well. That's all he's inviting us to do. And he's saying, and I'll be with you while you do it. In fact, that's his last phrase. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you. I am with you. It's hard to love and be loved. And if you're in community, I mean, You know, physics, like bodies in motion near each other, cause friction. And so it's going to be hard to love and be loved by one another. And he says, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. And he tells us, this is the way the world's going to know I'm real, is by the way you love each other. And then I want you to love, he tells us in another place in the gospel, is not just each other, because that's kind of easy to love people who are like you. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love strangers and aliens. I want your love to be the mark of my people. In fact, Pastor Sean is going to unpack that for us next week. So make sure you come back to understand how important love is to the body of Christ. So withness is not fixedness. It is being with each other. And it doesn't mean it makes it go away, but we get to have him with us with each other. Well, that's a big deal. So these image of God is how we're all made. We're being transformed into the likeness or fullness of God. And he's the only one who can do it. We're becoming the light in the darkness. We are the salt of the world. We are the light. We are the ones that he is sending into the world together. And that is what gives him the greatest glory. Little Christs with each other. But he is the only one who is doing it. I'm going to call the worship team out and they're going to close us with this song that just, it just does such a beautiful job of painting the picture of how this really works because it begins with him. It's sustained by him. It's fulfilled by him. We just get to be the participants surrender to what he's trying to do in us, around us, and through us. It's all him. It's his promise to be with us till the end of the age. Tilden Edwards is an Episcopal priest who writes on contemplative practices. And I love the way that he says this in just a couple of sentences. Probably could have just read these and let you all go early, but I didn't. Sorry. But he really captures what I'm trying to explain. He says, some of the early church fathers well summarized the nature and purpose of our lives when they said that we are born in the image of God and meant to grow into the full likeness of God. The rise of contemplative practice today stems from the desire to grow more fully in to who we really are as little Christ's. We need to cultivate spiritual communities where there is mutual support, challenge, and practices to foster the lifetime journey from the image to the likeness of God. And he is the only one who does it. Let's listen to this together.